The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You will uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus 2. I know some of you believe that all this stuff is new. Well, I've got news for you. Some of you are just now, your mothers are grateful. You're finally learning to wash your hands again. Praise the Lord. But that's in the Bible. It's already there before CDC and State Departments of Health. It's Exodus thirty twenty one. Thou shalt wash thy hands and feet, lest you die. This is a statute forever from the Lord. Just wanted you to know that. That's where it is. This is nothing new for us. It's just reclaiming good ground. Look with me in Titus 2, 11 through 14. <clears throat> for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may this word be preached for you. Please be seated. Well, um, so I got a, the phone call on Thursday about the directions, and we went to work. And so again, grateful for the leadership that really went to work so that we could provide something where uh, we could probably get 500 people and be knowing that 500 was the guideline of, and below from the state. And then also knowing that 500 in this place, we would be able to do plenty of social distancing. And so um, and then work through all the other things like the offering and the membership, all of that. But one of the things is, is I was all set to preach on lifestyle stewardship this Sunday. And uh, now lifestyle stewardship is uh, I've decided I'm going to set that aside till we get back to our regular worship and ministry schedule. And I begin to pray about what is it that I should address? Well, this this is on our mind, isn't it? Uh, so I just decided, I think uh, for this time of interim worship and ministry uh, scheduling that we're doing and in light of the present situation, I thought it would be appropriate to just take a look at crisis and the Christian in biblical perspective. Crisis and the Christian in biblical perspective. So this uh, started to say this morning, uh, actually this evening that I did this morning. Um, I want to take an overview of this. I want to give you three functional uh, pastoral uh, observations 
about the Christian in crisis, particularly the coronavirus crisis. But that's not where we're going to stop. There are multiple passages in the Word of God where believers have been faced with crisis. Those are wonderful case studies for the believer in crisis that we can learn from. So I've lined up a number of them. I don't know how long this will continue, but I've lined up a number of them. These a topical expository series of going to particular texts where the believer is in crisis and how does how do they respond and what lessons can we learn from those particular case studies? But I want to do an overview first. And the overview can start with this Titus 2, 11 through 14. Now, what about the present distress, the present crisis, coronavirus? Now, I probably wouldn't have done this this morning, but this I still feel like this is a PM worship service here. And, um, I, you know, one guy and I were talking and he said, well, I don't have to worry about a coronavirus. I I got saved and quit drinking them a long time ago. So uh, I said, no, 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 that's not quite accurate. Let me let me try to explain to you what Corona is. Uh, corona, you probably hear the word coronation there, uh, that you place a crown on someone to uh, coronation. Well, that's the concept from the Latin. And so the Corona or the crown, and that's the shape of the cell. It looks like a crown when you look at it under a under a microscope, and um, uh, and it, and it's not new. We've had this. In fact, it's listed on the back of your Lysol can if you want to go take a look. We've known about the human coronavirus since 1960, but this is a new strain, a, a more powerful strain, and it's one obviously we don't have any vaccines for. Its lethality is about two to three percent is what they are pretty well settled out in. Uh, But it has groups that it's particularly lethal. And that's the older people and um, and the and those that are health compromised. And um, (laughs) it kind of came home to me yesterday. I went out of state to do a, a wedding for one of our families, and when I got out of state to do the wedding for one of our families, there was a guy that came up to me, and he introduced himself. I won't use his name, uh, but he introduced himself, and I recognized the name. I knew his father, and I knew his grandfather, and uh, so I said hello, and he said, yeah, he said, I heard you were doing this wedding, and I decided for sure I wanted to come, and I said, well, great, and he said, but then I told everybody that this wedding wasn't going to be held. Uh, if you're the uh, if you're the efficient, I, uh, I kind of looked at him and he said, he said, Pastor Reader, just how old are you? I wanted to say, boy, nobody ever taught you any manners. Uh, he said, uh, just how old are you? And I said, well, I'm a little over 70, just barely. And he said, um, wow. He said, see, I told everybody we wouldn't have this wedding because you wouldn't be here to do it. Pastor Reader, you're vulnerable. I said, vulnerable to what? He said, the coronavirus. You ought not to be here. And I said, well, is that because of my age or my health compromised? Which one is that? And he probably was going to say both of them. And I said, well, perfect love cast out all fear, and we'll just kind of go ahead with this. But don't touch me the rest of this wedding. And uh, so um, so I was able to sur- to survive it. So we're aware of the, the, the focus of the lethality is there, and, um, and those who 
are health compromised. And, of course, we've tried to make those announcements as clear as possible to everyone in this modified schedule. But the question is, is how should the Christian respond to this? You're getting a taste of how the world responds. The world, in a secular world in life view, which increasingly our cultural has, is a materialist. And it can only see things in terms of what they put their hands on. So, my goodness, you mean contagion's going to spike and it has a lethality to it? And then panic and then fear. Uh, Now, the fact is, we don't have a vaccination for it, so you have to kind of go back to the old methods of isolation and mitigation. And that's what's happening And we certainly want to hear that and listen to it, even as you see we've done here. But the question is, is how should we view it from a Christian world in life view? How should we respond to it? How should we deal with it? And so that's why I wanted to get to this overview. How would Jesus have us respond to a situation like this? And does the word of God give us any clue? Does the word of God frame this up for us? Well, I believe our Lord has given us a directive as to how we should live. This this, this should not take any of us by surprise. Oh, my goodness. Corona virus. Well, 1918 was the Spanish flu. I've lived through the Asian flu, the swine flu, SARS, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then there are wars. More people died in wars in the last century and the resulting famines and uh, and droughts and all of the things that were accompanied with it in the last century than all the centuries combined of recorded history. And that shouldn't surprise us. What did Jesus say before he ascended to heaven? He told us until I come back, there will be the birth pangs. There will be famine. And nakedness and peril and sword and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, crisis after crisis. You will have personal crisis. There will be ge- uh, there will be geological crisis, national crisis, global crisis, national crisis, economic crisis. You will have that until I return. And those are the things that are telling you we're moving to the end. But until the end, you're going to have a crisis. So then how should we live? How should we respond? How should we deal with it? Well, this text, I just want to unfold very briefly for you and then draw down three distillations. This text very likely became an early confession of the church. Maybe even an early hymn of the church. Maybe both. It was written by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul to Titus as Titus was sent to Crete in ministry of church revitalization of the churches that were in Crete that needed to be set back in order. And in the middle of it, he gives this particular statement. It it falls into, if you think of it as a hymn, it falls into three stanzas. Stanza number one, I call present grace. Stanza number two, I call, I'm sorry, stanza number one, I call past grace. Stanza number two, I call 
present grace. Stanza number three, I call future grace. You see how it starts in verse 11. For the grace of God has, past tense, appeared, bringing salvation to all peoples, or to all people. Now, that's an interesting word, appeared. It's the word epiphano. You hear the word many times. You'll go and hear the word at a church, the epiphany. The epiphany is a bright outshining. It's spoken of in the rising of a sun as it comes up over a mountain and the rays just flood the valley. It's, that's called an epiphany. This is referring to something very specific in the history of redemption, the incarnation. This is referring to Christ. It is affirmed, for instance, by John, John chapter 1. Christ, the light of the world, has come. Or in John 1.14, the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory in the incarnation has broken out and shines. Now, it's veiled. It doesn't shine without its veil. If it shined without the veil, no one could live. It shines veiled in flesh to Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So Christ has come. To save his people from their sins. He has come to save us, bringing salvation. Notice, salvation has to be brought to us from God. We can't do it. We can't save ourselves. This glorious past grace that Christ has come to save his people from their sins. Where are his people? From all the nations. Bringing salvation to all the peoples. Do you see the Abrahamic language? The movement of the gospel from the Jewish nation to all the nations isn't plan B. It's God's plan all along. Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now Christ has come. Now he is died an atoning death. Now he is risen. Now he is ascended. Now we are commissioned to make disciples of all the nations. Praise God for a faith promise commitment and prayer commitments and missionaries ready to go. And then a church committed to doing it right where they send them from. That's what God has called us to. May I stop here just for a moment? I know this is a very select group. Uh, It's a very motivated group, but yet, there may be some here that you've come to church, but you haven't come to Christ. Come. Church can't save you. Church attendance can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Ritual can't save you. You've heard the news. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But you've heard the good news. Jesus saves. 
I plead with you, come. Come to this Savior. There will be those up here that you can pray with after the service. Come to him. Be born again. And this glorious grace has come. But now once this grace that has come to you has brought you to Christ and you've come to Christ, what happens by grace next? Well, verse 2 is next. Look at what he says. Bringing salvation to all peoples. Now look. Training us. Training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Stop right there. The word training, I would suggest to you, is better translated. And I confess, New American Standard still captures a little bit of my heart. I love the ESV, but I've shared with them. There's a couple of places, and this is one of them. I think the word is better translated for multiple reasons. Not training. Not so. This notion of training, yeah, it's appropriate, but I like the old translation. Translation. It's the one Jerry Bridges calls upon in his book, The Discipline of Grace, that the grace of God that has come for us and brought us to Christ is now disciplining us. Disciplining us. And what does God's grace, when you partake of the means of grace, word and the spirit, preaching, sacrament, prayer, uh, worship, fellowship, all of those means of grace for the word and the spirit to work. What works out of those who have come to Christ? You deny ungodliness. You renounce ungodliness. That is a life lived out from under the majesty and claims of the God of glory and grace. You say no to ungodliness. You renounce it. You kill it. The desire for it. The very, the old desire to come short of the glory of God. Now you renounce. You want God's glory even in eating and drinking. So you renounce ungodliness. That's the vertical. And you deny and renounce worldly desires. I'm not going to God by your grace. I want to, the worldly desires that come to me from the outside in temptation, I want to flee. The worldly desires that are left within me, the old man, I want to kill every day. Whether it's drunkenness or food or power or possessions. All of these acts, sexuality, promiscuity, perversion, natural sex, promiscuous, unnatural sex. God, any of that desire, by your grace and with the means of grace, I want to kill it, renounce it. I'm at war with it. That's present grace. It is training us, disciplining us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And where does that lead us? Here's where it leads us. It leads us to three identifying marks of the Christian in this present age. Discipling us, disciplining us to deny, renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. And here, again, again, do you mind if I give the other quote from the NAS? I, again, think it's just more accurate here. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live, now listen to this, sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. 
present grace, the present age with crisis, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, the present age with periodic victories. I want to live sensibly. Folks, you do not manifest grace. You don't manifest your trust in grace when you live irrationally or presumptively. The Christian life is sensible and then obedient. That's what righteousness is. Obedience to God. Now, we've got the perfect righteousness that's been attributed to us in our salvation. But we've got a pursuit of righteousness. The sensible thing is obedience. The sensible thing is trust. And trust is manifest in obedience. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey. Sensible. Righteous. Now watch. Remember where did we start in present grace? Denying ungodliness. Now where do we end up? Sensible, righteous, and godly. Coram Deo. Living life under the eye of God. But God's grace isn't finished. Now future grace. Look at that next verse. Waiting for the blessed Hope. You know, that's one of the things that sets God's people aside in moments like this. When all of the disappointments of life, the masters is not going to be played. Can you believe that? I was convinced we must be near the end time. Spring training has been postponed and opening day. And so with our hearts fastened to those things and crisis comes, we we just are dismembered. We're dissipated. We begin to fall apart because there's where our hope is, but not the believer. When the crisis comes and things seemingly are falling apart, we know those things are a way of life. Brokenness is a way of life until Christ comes and we are waiting for our blessed hope. Our hope is not in toilet paper or canned goods. I mean, you buy toilet paper. I'm all for that. But that's not, you don't need two cases. That's not our hope. That's not our hope. Our hope is Christ is coming and we're headed to a new heavens and a new earth and there will be no crisis there. For sin and all of its consequences are gone. Waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing. There's that word again. When was that blessed hope come? When he comes again. The one who came and appeared is coming again. Epiphanos. He is coming again. The blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And just in case... You miss who he is. The next phrase ties you all the way back to past grace. Who is this Jesus that's coming? The one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purchase for himself a people from all the peoples of the world for his own possession. 
That's what he did in past grace. He's coming again. But by the way, not only does this third verse of future grace tie back to present, uh, past grace, it also ties back to present grace. Because when he comes for those people, what will he find them doing? Look at the last words. Zealous for good works. They're denying ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly and righteously in this pres- I just love this passage so much. And uh, that's all the time I got for it right now. Because I want to download just with that present grace marks. I want to download three observations for you. God's people. Who are founded on past grace. Who are being molded by present grace. Who are anticipating future grace. While we're here in a broken world. We live sensibly. Righteously. And godly. In this age, this broken age, this crisis-filled age, what does that look like? Let me give you three takeaways. Here's the first one. The first one, these are a little long, but I, I promise they're on the, be on the website. You don't have to try to write them if you don't want to. But here's what it is. What's the first takeaway from this? Crisis today, including the coronavirus crisis, is an opportunity for God's redeemed To intentionally grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ personally and corporately as a church. Personally and corporately. This is what, why hasn't God taken all of the brokenness away now? He's won the victory. He's defeated our enemies. Why hasn't He destroyed them? Why hasn't He gone ahead and given us the new heavens and the new earth? For the same reason He took Israel through the wilderness. He's getting you ready for the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the world's crisis become for us. They become a test. The crisis, when God, you got to remember, what did you just learn? God's grace is greater. The grace of God has appeared. What have you just learned? You have learned something called God's grace from a sovereign God. Notice, God's grace appeared not because we asked for it, but because God sovereignly sent it. And out of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God's grace, we get a number of other doctrines, but one in particular that's important for what we are addressing right now, it's called the providence of God. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is a recognition that not all things are good, but a promise that all things work together for good. We know, we know, we know because of God, not because of us. We know because of who God is. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's including coronaviruses. God causes all things. That's not, it's not a good thing. But God is sovereignly working, causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And tied to that, notice the same God who is sovereignly doing this work of past grace, present grace and future grace is the same God, the very same God who enables us to live sensibly, righteously and godly. We don't just move around like robots. God's grace enlivens us. It enables us 
to, in the midst of a broken world, live sensibly. That's making decisions righteously and godly in the present age. In other words, when these moments come, get a firm, listen to me, please, get a firm grip and grasp upon God's grace in Christ. Then surrender and make sure that God's grace has got a firm grip and grasp on you, not the world, not its panic, not its fears. You make sure that you know your God. His grace and his mercy have a grasp and grip on you as you have taken the time to get a grip and a grasp on his grace revealed in his word. Then you can profit from this. Pastor, what do these moments do? Moments like this, number one, create a platform for us. They create a wonderful platform for us. Whereby our response to it becomes a witness. I read a blog. I read a New York Times reporter. And read the, I can't remember the name of it, I think Mercurator Net. From the inside information of China. Does anyone know where the epicenter of the coronavirus began? Does anybody know where it began? Wuhan, China. Here is what is said. Oh, so Pastor, uh, it's now started to subside there, right? Yes. But that's not what I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is in February and March, here's what an observer, not another believer, an observer, journalist said. The Wuhan Christians, in their response to the coronavirus, have put their government to shame. And I go on to quote their selflessness, their strength. Their thoughtfulness, sensible. Their courage. And when asked, they tell everyone it's because of our faith in Christ. See the platform? That's the platform that they saw was given to them. And such a moment not only becomes a platform, it becomes an instrument in the hands of God, whereby he begins to work on us. What do crisis and tests do? I remember my algebra test. That was a crisis. But I also know why it was given to me. To show me what I know. To show me what I don't know. And to show me what I need to know. That's what moments like this produce for us. They show you what you know about your God and your relationship with him in the body of Christ. And they show you what you, you uh, that you yet need to know. And they show you not only what you know and what you don't know, but what you need to know from that word. And it's not only personally, it's also corporately. How will churches respond? 
Will we be drawn together in the unity of truth and love and mercy and grace with our diverse gifts? Responding to the glory of God with confidence in the grace of God. And we know how to, now watch this, sensibly, righteously, and godly. You know how to trust God, but don't tempt God. You trust God, but you don't tempt God. You believe in God's providence, yes. Providence, yes. Panic, no. Faithfulness, yes. Fear, no. Trust God, but don't tempt him. Folks, this is not something that just new. Can I just give you one verse, please? And I'll give you this last part very rapidly. Look at Proverbs. Look at with me in Proverbs. There's so many verses in Proverbs I could have gone to. I'm just going to one. Go to Proverbs with me. Can I just show you one? This is one you want to remember. To trust in God does not mean to act with simplicity and stupidity. That's not manifesting a trust in God. That's why the word sensible is there. Trust him. Be bold. Be courageous. But also be sensible in the Lord. Here's what he says in Proverbs and uh, chapter 22. Look over at verse 3. The prudent sees danger. And what does he do? He hides himself. So let's say you and I go to some Kruger National Park and we're walking through the Kruger National Park and a lion comes out. What will you do? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide myself to the best of my ability. Well, Harry, don't you trust the Lord? I do. But I am not going to tempt the Lord by standing there and becoming his breakfast. I'm going to hide myself. That's what God teaches me to do. Be prudent. God-given wisdom. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. Let Let me bring that to coronavirus. The prudent washes their hands. The prudent doesn't seek to be infected. The prudent understands hygiene. The prudent understands proper medical care. If I were you, I'd take as much vitamin C as I could possibly stick into my body within prudence. That we take the right steps. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. The simple, they don't. They just go on and they end up suffering because of their lack of prudence. So we say to God, give us prudence and no panic. But also let us address concerns. We trust you with confidence, but we're not going to tempt you in the name of trust. You obviously see this with our Lord who has a promise. He'll not cause you, he'll not let your feet uh, to stumble, yet he would not throw himself down from the temple. As he brought the prudent understanding of God's word to bear. Well, let me give you a second takeaway. An opportunity 
This gives us an opportunity to display and deploy a gospel witness for God's glory and a gospel witness for God's grace. In other words, moments like this many times are used. Now, people say to me, Harry, is this is this judgment or is this God giving us an opportunity? My answer is yes. This could very well be God's judgment upon the nation. This is a pandemic. The pandemic does not refer to lethality. It, re- it refers to the breadth of something. This goes across states. This goes across nations. It's pandemic. Is this God's global, national, local judgment? I'll leave that to the hands of God. I have no special revelation. It could be. But here's something else I know. In moments when man faces his extremities, it becomes our opportunity to tell them, Put your trust in God, his son, Jesus. Go check the papers. I think all of the accounts I'm reading are verified. Hundreds upon hundreds are coming to Christ right now in this last months and weeks in Iran, northern Italy and China. The very focus points at this moment of this crisis. It is glorious to see how God does this. If it's judgment, I leave that in the hands of God. But it may also be a blessing to open up opportunities for you to talk to people about Jesus who would never talk to you before. And you can tell them our hope is not in what's on the shelf at the department store or the grocery store. Our hope is in Christ. And that door, it becomes wide open for you. These moments of crisis many times make hard hearts ready for the gospel seed. Seize those moments. They're glorious moments. Here's what Martin Luther said in the 60s. By the way, I I don't have time, but I'd love to share with you what John Calvin told his presbytery, his company of pastors, how to respond to the plagues in Geneva. But here's what Martin Luther said. I love this. Dr. John Hess wrote him and asked him what to do. How does I as a Christian pastor and a Christian respond to these plagues? And here's what Martin Luther said. Uh, Dr. Hess, here's what I shall do. I shall ask God in his mercy to protect us. Then I I will fumigate. And I will open up. The windows to purify air. I will will secure and administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not requested or needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute someone else and cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God wishes to take me, he'll find me. But I will, he will find me having done what is expected of me. And so I am not responsible for my death or the death of others. But if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid their place. I shall go to them. I will go to their place and their person. 
I will freely go even in the manner that I have stated above. See, this is such a testimony of God-fearing faith. It's neither brash nor foolhardy, nor tempt God. So may I say something? I want you all to know I'm not going to be foolhardy. I'm not going to unnecessarily expose myself, and I am going to wash my hands. I love this. I love today at Briarwood. It has been cleaned four times with Lysol. I feel like I'm 13 years old in my mother's house again. So we will do what's right, sensible, righteous, and godly. But I want you to know something. If you or your grandmother or your grandfather or your child becomes a consequence of this crisis, you call. We'll be there. You call. We'll be there. These are moments for God's people to display and deploy the gospel of grace. Finally, let me give you the third takeaway. This is an opportunity to observe and participate in God's providence at work in the midst of this present crisis. Boy, doors are opening up for us all over the place. I wish I could. I've got so many examples that I would love to give to you, but I don't have the time. Just let me end this way. Here's what I would just say in conclusion. I've looked at this virus. I confess to you. Some people say, Pastor, why did you have a double major of history and theology? Because I found out I only had to take one science course and one math course. But I've done my scientific biological reading and I found now found out about a virus that a virus attaches itself to an organ and then it invades that whole organ. And after that, it moves to another and after that to another. And if the immune system doesn't develop the proper responses and there are no vaccines, then what it does, it eventually can kill. Boy, it sure sounds like sin to me. The virus of sin creeps in small, then to this area, that area, another area, and the wages of sin is death. But we don't have a vaccine for sin. We got a cure. It's Jesus. He will deliver you. From the penalty and the power. He will even increasingly deliver you from the practice. And praise God for the blessed hope. One day he'll deliver us. From the presence of sin. In 1793. Philadelphia. Was undergoing. The yellow fever plague. I stood right where this happened that I'm about to share with my dear friend Peter Lilbeck. Do y'all remember in Charleston the horrendous killings at the Mother Emanuel Church? Do y'all remember that? Well, let me take you back a couple of hundred years to the original Mother Emanuel Church. I remember admiring their Christian response. But it didn't surprise me because I happened to have heard What happened in the DNA of that church? Back to its original. His name was Richard Allen. He was a slave who brought his own freedom. 
Then he studied theology. Then he was ordained at the Trinity Episcopal Church. And then he established the African Free Society. And when the yellow fever hit, he had planted a church called the Mother Emmanuel Church of Philadelphia. The death rate was 10% and rising. And as the death rate rose 10% and higher, everyone fled but Richard Allen and his African-American members. For the next days and weeks, they transported the afflicted. They treated the afflicted. They prayed for the afflicted. They shared the gospel with the afflicted. These become opportunities to seize for the glory of God as we trust and obey sensible, righteous, and godly in this present age. Just take a few moments in silent prayer, would you? Sensible, righteous, godly, trusting our God without tempting our God. Obedience, fearless, faithful, with no panic, but with prudence. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.